If you have an interest in horses and love learning more about horses, the horse industry, teaching, or even managing your own horse business, then you're in the right place. We would love you to join us on our mission, which is to improve the lives of horses around the world through the education of riders, handlers, and trainers. So get comfortable, listen in, and enjoy. If you have the same vision as International Horse College, which is to have a world where people safely appreciate, respect, and enjoy their horses, and the horses appreciate, respect, and enjoy their people, then have a look at their website, internationalhorsecollege.com. Registered Training Organisation 31352. Now, today I'd love to reintroduce again John McLean, and I just love the series that he's doing. He's taken a fold from, you know, just being born, and we're up to the stage now where we've talked about mounting the horse and, and, you know, just the first little bit of sitting on the horse. And we're going to now talk about going from the round yard to open spaces in Walk, Trot and Canter, so proofing the riding aids. But before I do that, how are you tonight, Jonna? Oh, I'm very good. It's very, very cold down here in Victoria, <laughs> but we're hoping. Oh, that's good. That's good. Yeah, we're having some lovely days and cold nights, I think. Yes. Yeah, yes, yeah. Indeed. Or I just stuck down and put a rug on a horse, actually, just before I, I called you, so that's why I was a couple of minutes late. <laughs> oh, no worries. No, yeah. that's all right. All right. Now, the first thing we've got, and I love the way that you go over, you know, you teach a horse something, you teach it in such gradual steps. I'm sure the horse barely knows that he's actually being introduced to something new. But then you keep going back and confirming and making sure that everything's intact. So the first thing we're going to talk about is to ensure that all pressure release systems are intact and able to withstand changes in context, all right? So, you know, what we're doing on the ground, and we're talking about stop, go, back, park, and yield, which are the main things that you're just asking the horse to do. So would you like to talk about all that again, please? Um, Glennis, to make sure, the reason we go over these things is because People aren't that aware of contextual changes, whereas a horse is really, really attuned to things. And mm-hmm. it might be the time of the day. It could be the weather. It could be just something that happened the previous night that the um, owner, rider, or trainer doesn't realise what's happened. And the horse might come into you with a high, high, uh, slightly higher arousal state, and that will affect things. So by checking these things, what we're really doing is finding out where is the horse at today and never, ever presuming that it will be a lay-down mazare like it was yesterday or the day before. So I'm, I'm always presuming that there is something there that the horse doesn't quite get. So it's a bit like, you know, proofreading the script, if you like, just yep. making sure that everybody's on the same page. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And now that we're, now that we're going um, transferring our ridden cues to um, being uh, astride the horse or under saddle, either way, whether it be bareback or, or under um a saddle is really now the context are going to change massively because there's no one on the ground if you're doing it by yourself. And often, if I'm doing that, I'll often have somebody just part, um, standing there beside the horse, not not doing anything, just being there. So mm-hmm. that at least that context isn't changed too much because, you know, I think a lot of people will be able to relate to the fact that if the horse gets worried when you're leading it, one of the first things that he does if he's not too scared, is that he'll probably lean over and touch you or smell you. He'll, he's looking for something familiar to recognise that everything is okay and it's not scary. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's an important part if you've had a really good uh, affinity with your horse that those things are really important. And, of course, he can't sniff you because you're now on him. 
Yes, yes, yes. I'm just thinking, you know, it's so much instinct, isn't it? You know, you were talking about just the slight changes in weather and time of day, but if they're living in the wild, that makes a really big difference as to predators and things, doesn't it? Absolutely. And these these things are hardwired in the in the horses, these uh, flight responses and herd drives and hunger drives, etc. Mm-hmm. All those traits are hardwired in every horse. It's just that in um, the horses that are naturally more docile, um, they don't tend to be as much of an issue. But that doesn't mean that they can't be. They can still be, you know, um, can I say... Uh, reinvigorated with a with a with a fright or something like that, and we often hear that. You know, often people will say, "I'm going to a warm a warm blood type of horse because they're quieter." When really, there's probably just as much likelihood of the war, of of the warm blood horse uh, becoming scared and using flight as an escape mechanism as there is a thoroughbred. So okay. that's been my experience. Yes. Mm, mm, mm. Okay. Now you've got now about checking the self carriage of the aids. Yep. So can you talk yeah. a little bit about the self-carriage and just, you know, a bit of an underlying what that means, but what we're actually looking for when we're checking. The self-carriage state is when the horse continues to do whatever you ask it to do with with a uh, very, very uh, minimal amount of input from the rider or the handler. Um, and it will continue to do that until told to do otherwise. And probably the best example, as I gave in the previous episode, is um, when the horse continues to halt and he stands there all by himself. In dressage, we call it immobility, which means that the horse has now halted, but now is halting for longer. And we wish, if we'd like that to be completely sustainable and able to withstand whatever time context we put into it, so five seconds, 10 seconds, 30 seconds, or a minute, or 15 minutes, depending on what you wish to do, then we want to make sure that we don't have to keep holding the reins to do that, or we don't have to use any other signals. The horse will just stand. And the easiest way to describe to do that is if you allow the horse to move, but quietly, um, quietly, but quickly, when I say quickly without using high pressure at the start, but just um, catching the very first error, and let's say if the horse tries to go forward for a step, then you just put that leg back where it was, uh, where where it came from, mm-hmm. and then you release the pressure, and you you're daring him to move again. And what the horse is now working out that the very first step of him departing, which is the very very beginnings of the flight response, if you like, is not profitable anymore. So then he'll probably try something else. And the most common one you get with the horses that don't like standing because they haven't stood very well in their past or or something is a bit scary, is they'll often start pouring. So um, the pouring is exactly the same. It's a frustration with going forward. And we see this in horses that are feeding. So when a horse is feeding at the feed bin, he works to pour the feed bin. And that's because the hardwired reaction in the horse is to walk and graze, not to stand still and eat. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I love the way that you do repeat and consolidate everything. So can you talk about repeating, consolidating, and, and this time under saddle? Repeating and consolidating everything under saddle is really important because, as I said previously, the context in which you are now um, on the horse, because the context is different to being on the ground, is now possibly scary to him. So that's why we need to repeat it because we need to find out what our mission is when we are astride the horse or lying on the horse at all. Do those buttons now require any extra weight to have an effect more over and above what they did on the ground? And if the answer is yes, 
then you shouldn't go any further. You need to get them back to exactly as they were on the ground. Mm-hmm. And what we're chasing here is, and you'll see in the um, couple of dot points below, we're, we're pursuing obedience. And obedience is simply that at the time of the pressure, the horse does what you ask it to do. And if it was both reins, the horse should step backwards or stop or um, turn or go from your leg. So that should happen at the same time as the cue, not later. So that delay is resistance, and we can talk about that a little bit later on too. Okay, okay. And I know that the importance of context and trying to mimic the best way that we can the sight, the direction of rain and leg cues. So maybe talk about that and the importance of where we're up to now. So if we're in the round yard or we're in a stable or we're in a um, pretty familiar environment that produces relaxation and the horse is comfortable in that environment, he's he's quite happy just to park there while you tack him up or put his boots on or whatever, or taking his rugs off and he's quite um, comfortable with that, you'll find the park will be quite easy. But now when we start doing things like mounting, dismounting, turning, stopping, reversing and going, then... We need to find out whether in that context the, the, the aids will stay obedient. And then what we need to do is then examine in the ridden area, so out on the dressage arena, in the indoor, or wherever we are, do those things, uh, are they affected by the new context? And it might be the case where the horse on the ground is really, really quite comfortable and predictable, light and obedient, in other words, in the indoor but now when you get on and there's nobody there beside him, all of a sudden now you're not part of his visual picture. You've taken yourself out because you're now out of his visual field. You're riding, you're sitting on him directly behind him out of his eyesight and that can be, become a little unnerving. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. we need to make sure that the um, aids stay still really light and obedient and, and if they don't, you just simply dismount, refresh them, go back over them again and then mount, remount again and then see if they're any better. And then if they're still no better, then go back to the context in which they were better, which is probably the round yard or wherever it is. Never be afraid to go back a step, literally. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So keep repeating. Now, I know we've talked about self-carriage and, and we should check yeah. for it often, but how often is often when we're checking self-carriage? Look, to be completely truthful, with everything that I do mm. on every horse, every time I ride it, I check for self-carriage probably every 15 or 20 seconds or so. Okay. So, for example, if I'm riding a, a riding a horse, and I'm not sure if people will be able to understand this, but once we are able to get him to go reliably and comfortably from our leg cues and our rein cues, and they are reasonably complex, as we know, but just to keep them simple, so we'll just keep it to turn, stop and go, once the horse is going on our line at the speed that we want and he's doing it all by himself, that is the definition of self-carriage, he's doing it all by himself, then um, he will then be really quite comfortable with you holding the reins and the connection to his mouth and we call that contact. So mm-hmm. I, call my, I call it my internet. So um, <laughs> my internet is really the connection between my hand and, and the horse's mouth and if that connection is um, really nice and light and even, and I can feel the horse's mouth ever so slightly beyond the way to the rein. I'm not on a loose rein. I'm not on a floppy rein. I'm on a connection. And I've al- we've always done this, is that we always ride horses on a connection. Um, because if it, a really, really light rein, and let's call it the true meaning of contact, 
Um, and if we want to put a weight on it, let's say somewhere between 70 and 100 grams, if you like, if you're on a single rein system. Um, the Western horses are actually on none, of course, because they don't like contact at that stage. They want to be able to do it. But um, we're going to say they want to be able to do it. They would like to get to the point where they can do everything just with their own body. So they're yes, going to be on that. It's quite, it's quite interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and really effective, of course. But what we're doing in equestrian is riding them on a contact. So what a, a, a very long-winded explanation. I apologise for that. But really what we're trying to say is when the contact is really light and really even, you're actually testing for self-carriage if your contact is light. Mm-hmm. And it's mm-hmm. amazing. Yeah. So when you ask me how often do I do it, and I said, oh, probably every 20 seconds or so, um, it's probably the whole time whenever I can, I never not do it. Because yep. I need to find out what is he doing. If I'm holding him, then I'm training him to be held. And I don't want to train him to be held. I would like to just train him to do what I require of him um, and continue to do that by myself. Because then I can feel other subtleties. Whereas if there's a slightly uh, a resistant process from a leg aid or from a rein aid, then I'll be focused on that and I won't be able to listen to some of the other things that he's giving me feedback on, whether it be a rain pressure or resistance to my leg, because I'll be preoccupied with the weight that I have. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I know that, you know, we're talking about contact and then you talked about, you know, differences between Western classical and I also know that, yep. you know, you've got a lot to do with racehorses and racing, but the methods and the techniques that you're using, even though there are slight differences I suppose in the end product they seem to be to me ones that you could use on any young green horse is that right? It is absolutely right Glennis and I've spoken to I've got quite a few people that have um uh riding in western saddles and bitless bridles and in various states and and also um overseas as well and they all agree that when things um are difficult for, for the horse to be able to do something, for example, walking on a tarpaulin, going to a horse slope, going across a creek and they have to lead it, they do have to use pressure. Mm-hmm. And when they have to use pressure, well, clicking to it and feeding a carrot probably isn't going to cut it because they're only fairly light pressures. But by the same token, they have to use pressure with the rein or the lead rope or, or a whip or whatever it is to encourage the horse to give them the correct answer, in which case, as soon as they do, they take the pressure away the same as us. All yep. they're doing is backing to the next step where it might be on a voice cue or on some sort of body signal. So, again, you know, it comes down to a more classical approach. So, in a lot of ways, um, uh, I believe a, a lot of the really good Western riders got um, classical um, better organised than, um, than a lot of dressage riders, in my own opinion. Mm, mm, mm. If you're an equestrian coach or a horse riding instructor, or even if you aspire to be one, have a look at the free video series for horse riding instructors on the Horse Chats website. Go there now. Have a look. Horsechats.com. Now, this habituation process, it continues on under saddle. How does the movement, the leg movement, the body movement, tell us a little bit about the habituation process and how it continues under saddle. Yeah, and it becomes more complex because the amount of areas that we start to discover under saddle become greater because we're going further, we're covering more distance, and we're probably... Uh, a lot more likely to encounter variations, abnormal variations in contexts such as dogs and prams and kids and rain and hail and all those sorts of things. So um, that's where we really need to make sure that all our buttons are actually working really, really quite well. And I'll just add something here that I would like to think that every time that we are doing anything with our horse, whether it be uh, walking or trotting a circle or cantering, that we practice that 
and aim to get to the self-carriage state in at least four or five different contexts, and then it's able to withstand considerable change. So, you know, we do the same thing with horses that um, want, uh, are not good into water jumps, for example. Once you have a horse going predictably and reliably into a water jump the first time, and then you can do five to seven repetitions, and then you can change the context five times, you're pretty much... So five different water jumps in five different locations with the same level of obedience, mm-hmm. you're ready to compete. So it's very, very – these outcomes are really predictable. Science has um, been able to establish these things. We're really fortunate to have that degree of understanding from the scientific community to know these things because mm-hmm. I know certainly when I was younger, it was basically gallop your horse as fast as you can into the water and you might get in there. <laughs> yes, yes. I think things have certainly changed a bit, yep, yep. Just going back now to the mounting, the dismounting, we need to do it both sides. We need to keep our horse in park. Yeah. Do you want to talk a bit more about mounting, dismounting, and also the mount speed? You know, I mean, we want everything smooth, but how we start off, but then how we get it to the smooth. And Yeah. Okay. Probably the easiest way to describe the outcome is to make sure that the the mounting speed does not affect the self-carriage state, whether it be mounting near side and dismounting offside or vice versa. So um, not everybody's up for mounting the offside, but I encourage all my riders to practice dismounting on the offside. And and the reason that I give is that all of a sudden you've got a badly strained left ankle. You probably shouldn't mount on the near side. You should probably mount on the offside. Mm-hmm. And if you wish to land on your on your leg, which is um, uh, a little bit more sound than your left leg, then you're probably going to need to land on your right leg. Now, it's up to you whether you or the person riding whether you wish to take most of the weight on the uh, on the other leg, whether you do it from the near side or the offside. Either way, the horse has to be able to withstand that now abnormal dismounting and mounting shape because you won't mount and dismount like you normally do. So it will be different. So a really good way to do that is to is practice. Mounting slowly, practice mounting like you're a complete beginner and crawling up your horse and falling off it, off the other side. And, and that's what I do with the younger horses. Um, the very first time that they are dismounted on the offside is probably after I've been on them for less than 10 minutes. So I practice mounting and dismounting off the near side so they're completely habituated to that. Yep. And he hasn't violated the self-carriage state of park. And then just by using my right rein and getting him to look a little bit right, so now I have slight section right so he can clearly see me, yes. then I quietly but quickly dismount and land on my feet beside him. And sometimes that is really quite scary for a horse because all of a sudden now you've appeared in his vision on his offside. And we know from science that horses are much quieter in the near side eye than they are in the offside eye. So nearly every time, uh, this is what I, I believe anyway, you know, the most uncomfortable way to fall off is falling off on the offside. Mm-hmm. And most people are really uncomfortable falling off the offside and they'll do whatever it takes. In fact, they'll almost lose themselves off the horse in preference from going off the near side and the offside. And that's probably because they don't practice dismounting off the side. So for the horses, it's a change of context, but it is also a massive change of context for the person as well. Yeah. So we need to make sure that all those things are intact. Stop. I need to interrupt this chat for a hot-off-the-press notification. That is, that the latest version of the book, 101 Careers in the Horse Industry, is now available, and the best news is that it's a free download. So if you work in the horse industry, 
if you have a plan to work in the horse industry and have a career in the horse industry, or if you know someone who plans to have a career in this fabulous industry, then this is an essential book for you to read now and then keep as a reference as you progress through your career. With over 100 jobs to choose from, you'll probably find at least one that you'd happily do without being paid. So simply go to internationalhorsecollege.com, scroll down to the bottom of the page and click on the 101 careers in the horse industry button to receive your free career book. Imagine, maybe one day you could be a guest on Horse Chats. Mm, And I think that was interesting because I always thought that the mounting on the near side was to do with the swords and, you know, people being right-handed and having the sword to the left. Yes, that's right. Exactly. Yeah. But it's also also probably a a bit of a remarkable coincidence because scientific studies have shown that Mm. horses are Naturally, it'll be quieter out of the left, out of the left eye than they are out of the right. So, you know, it's a pretty nice coincidence because <laughs> um, being able to do both, of course. Exactly. Yep, yep, yep. No, no. I think that was that's certainly interesting, and you know, the things that science comes up with, you know, and they know because it's been proven and they've tested yeah, it, and it's not just an old wives' tale because someone worked it out once. Exactly, but that doesn't mean you can't get your horse's right eye. Um, um, you know, considerably closer to his reaction of his left eye. And we'll probably, a lot of us uh, will be able to relate to this, is that, for example, and I know this on younger horses, it's much harder to get the self-carriage state of flexion, which mm-hmm. is really only his eyes going where his legs are, on a circle to the right than it is to the left. Yep. Of course, much more able and much more athletic to um, buck you off the first time if you go on the left rein, but they're not as able because they're naturally a bit more stiff to the right. That's the majority. There are a lot of horses that aren't like that. Sure. But majority of horses are, and with training, they become really quite symmetrical. You can't notice any difference with a well, well-schooled well and a well-balanced horse. Mm, mm. I suppose that's where the, the training and the confidence and the trust comes yeah. in. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And then also, just go on from that a little bit, you'll often find um, people have a lot of trouble, and I get this with the younger horses a lot, I can't get my horse onto the right canter lead. Mm. So what can happen is that the horses develop a habit of going onto the wrong leg, and if that's allowed to be sustainable, then he thinks that that's the right answer, and so then it becomes a problem. But then once we correct that and we try to make sure that he doesn't ever practice that because you only get better at what you practice, is trying to re- eliminate the number of times the horse does it incorrectly compared to correctly, that those ratios rapidly change, and then we consolidate them, you tend to find that after a year or so, the horse's right lead will probably end up being better than the left because you've focused on it so much, and I see that a lot. Mm, 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 okay. Now, this point here, and I know that Tom Roberts taught something similar, yeah. that pressure motivates the reaction and the release of pressure trains it. And I think that's a very big a big point because people, when they first start to ride, they think that, well, you've got to kick a horse to go and you've got to keep kicking to keep it going and, and don't really <laughs> understand the whole training part of it. So yeah, 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 can you talk exactly. a little bit about that? Yeah, because you do it so much better than I do. <laughs> I, I could talk so much. I could talk for a whole hour on this concept. It's, it's ridiculous. And mm, mm. Look, Tom Roberts, as you probably um, know, and and for the interviews you may have done with Andrew, that Tom Roberts's books were the very first horse books that I ever read. And and um, my mum and and Andrew introduced me and encouraged me to read these books because I was a pony club, and. They were very readable books. It wasn't hard. And one of the classic things that I'll never forget that I can remember 
um, very early on, uh, a statement that he made was, profit me, profit me not. And that was really all about the pressure release system. And that was really the brainchild behind um, that whole thing was really the beginning of um, Andrew's endeavours into into um, equitation science discoveries and stuff. So it was just amazing and, and we're very, very relatable. So I think that the habituation to the leg aid is probably the most common one that I see and it is the most dangerous one. And um, I, I didn't put that in the 10 points, but not having a go button, I, you give me a horse that I can't steer and I can't stop, Mm. There's no problem. But you give me a horse that doesn't go, it nearly always results in rearing, bucking, spinning. And they're, they're traits that riders don't handle very well. Mm-hmm. So we want to avoid that. And they're nearly always caused by um, not, not a good go button. And, ten, and then as a result of not having a good go button, all the other buttons fall off the wagon pretty quickly as well. It becomes an avalanche of, of, um, uh, of resistance after that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you're an equestrian coach or a horse riding instructor, or even if you aspire to be one, have a look at the free video series for horse riding instructors on the Horse Chats website. Go there now. Have a look. Horsechats.com. Now, just just bringing us to a horse's line, maintaining a horse's line, and sort of just noting what parts of the yard the horse's line is hard to maintain. Talk about direct, indirect reins and when when we use direct reins when we use indirect reins to correct this okay so I'd, let's do, we'll start with the definition of line line is uh, the definition of line and i ask all my students this and i keep repeating it to them until they know exactly what i mean and it means that where the rider intends to go within inches mm-hmm. or here i am showing my age should be centimeters shouldn't it? <laughs> but a very small amount of space either way so then I ask people how they ride a straight line for a start. And that's where I start. I start on the arena, how do you ride a straight line? And they say, you know, I have to be balanced and I have to be symmetrical and I have to have my eyes up and I have to be looking ahead. And that's generally, you know, the right thing to do. I take it to another level, though. And when I say another level, is it's not possible to ride a horse straight unless you have two points of reference, something close and something far, a bit like a gun sight. A gun sight can shoot a bullet very straight because it has two points of reference. Mm -hmm. So if you ride up the arena, and whether it be the judge's car there or you're just practicing, it doesn't matter, and this is for when you don't have a mirror. This is how to perfect the art of riding straight. So every entry you do is no less than an 8.5 because you might as well get 8.5. It's your first first um, introduction to the judge, so they're easy marks to get. Um, the two points of reference are that something's sticking straight up, and while we use the judge's car, she might have an arrow in the middle of a car or something in the middle you can line up, and then 20, 30 yards behind it, there'll be a tree or a post or a mark on a hill or something that you'll be able to um, line those two things up. So then what you'll do is ride straight towards those two points, keeping them lined up, mm-hmm. and then ever so slightly up, and, and I'm presuming at this point, once we're trotting up the centre line, the horse's understanding of the leg is good enough that you can ask him to trot and he'll continue trotting, so you don't need to keep using your leg, because a horse that doesn't maintain its line, the very first thing we look at is whether it goes forward, because that's the biggest um, the, the biggest uh, problem with not going straight is, first of all, not going forward. And the second one is that he has natural drift or inclination to fall left or fall right. And when I start talking about falling left or falling right, a horse, a young horse, always falls left and falls right with their shoulders first. A bit like a car, need a wheel alignment at the front. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. So if the horse is falling left, then 
If you turned him right, that doesn't necessarily mean that it'll correct the shoulder. It probably will if it's effective. And you can start by doing that and just say, do one step to the right and then dare him to drift left again. And then every time he does, just apply the right rein by applying or opening your right rein and keeping your outside or your left rein uh, closed, which will encourage the shoulder to step right. The moment that he does, you release the pressure and then you say, now go straight. And if he drifts again, repeat the process. It'll only take you five or ten minutes and all of a sudden the horse will now go straight. So that's a direct rein or a direct turn. And when we talk about the, um, the specialities of creating a really effective direct turn, it has to be, the rein aid has to be applied just prior to the, uh, when the horse's foot is about to leave the ground. It needs to be applied what we call the stance phase. Mm-hmm. And then once it's left the ground and it's now in the flight phase, you should have almost released it because now you've already de- de- determined its trajectory. That's if it's been trained. If not, that's how we would train that. If you then say, okay, well, what I would like to be able to do is that I would like to be able to use my horse's shoulders left and right. So now I'm talking about something a bit more technical in terms of yield, laterally, left and right. That, Like my horse's hindquarters, I use my right leg to make his hindquarters go left, so travail left and then travail right um, from my leg aid. But likewise, we train exactly the same button with our rein aid, and that is when I close the left rein, just touch him on the neck, not cross it over his neck or anything like that, mm. just touch him on the neck and train it to the point where I touch him on the neck and the left front leg, if used in good time, and I practiced and trained this at walk, everything's done at walk, um, that when I touch him on the left, on the nape of the neck with the left rein, he should move his left leg one step to the right. And if he doesn't, then I open the right rein and I make him take one step right. So I ask with the left and I tell with the right. Yep. And it really only takes take five or ten minutes and you've got the button done. Mm-hmm. Most mm-hmm. good horses, though, and I've, I've had a lot of people that are quite resistant to, to these cues, especially the indirect rein, because they don't think you should do it for whatever reason. I, I, I couldn't live without it myself, but mm-hmm. anyway. The point is that if the left shoulder is going to the left and you use your left leg, on a young horse, you'll either get faster or you'll get travail right. Well, how is he going to know the difference? So we want to make sure that we have a button in a completely separate location that is individual only to that. So and that's the key about training responses is that every cue that you do ought to be so predictable and very, very escapable by the horse. Predictable means he knows what it means. Escapable means you release the pressure once he's done it. Those two are the most important features. So that's the difference between an indirect turn. So we call an indirect turn right, but it's actually off your left rein. An indirect turn left is off your right rein. Mm -hmm. And in slippery, dangerous conditions, that's the only button I use. I don't use turn rein. When it's really slippery, I'm galloping around a corner, flat out, doing cross country or whatever I'm doing. I nearly always change my horse's shoulders using indirect rein pressure rather than changing the traction potential by turning. Yep. Cross-country riders will be able to relate to yep. this. Yeah. I'm actually standing here, so I use the stand-up desk, you know, when I do oh, chats. Yeah. But it's really good because I can stand up here, close my eyes, pretend I'm galloping, right, that's what I yep. do. Yep, okay. Yep. Yeah, yeah, I need five to seven good repetitions myself to get it right, so I've got to re-listen and do it again. (laughs) Well, well, that's right. The older you get, the more you need. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so so to do with horses, we need five to seven good repetitions without an error. You talked about it earlier with, you know, with the water. Yes. 
stopping immediately, direct turns yep. left, right, indirect turns. Just talk a little bit about that and the go response. Just talk a little bit about that. Okay, so um, just to underline everything that I'm doing with these cues, everything, and I haven't mentioned that in the, in the 10 points, and I probably should have. We always ask with a very light cue first. So one of the things that um, I probably should have put in the 10 points was that if we ask with the cue that we want him to be trained to, so the very first signal you give him will potentially be the cue that you get as a result of it. So if you use a heavy pressure, that's all you'll get. But if you use a light pressure, then follow it through with a stronger pressure, then release it at the right time, it will end up being light, guaranteed. It doesn't matter how bad the horse's mouth is or, or what the situation is, as long as he's not scared. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can't train when the horse is scared anyway. All you can do is survive it and then review what you need to do. However, from a go point of view, so we'll ask quietly with our calf and then we'll follow it through maybe with a niggling of our heel and then we might increase the pressure with our leg and then we might start some whip taps if he's really quite resistant. Um, and then we have this gradient process of pressure that causes the horse to motivate or you to motivate it through pressure, making sure we're not using any opposing pressure, um, to take a step forward or to go faster, whatever the request is, and then release it. Then if we keep repeating that and making sure that the time frame between the light signal and the stronger motivating pressure is not too long, and I, I say that there should be really the smallest amount of time that you can do between the light aid and the stronger aid mm-hmm. because time, he, he needs to be able to connect this. And if he's given too much time between the light aid and the stronger aid, he, he won't connect it. So we need to make sure that he understands what it is. And then we just keep repeating it. So we go light aid, stronger, 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 good boy. Light aid, stronger, stronger, good boy. So mm-hmm. we keep doing that. Yep. And the good boy will release the pressure. So whether it be turn, stop or go or yield. And so that's why I practice everything at walk because it's like it's like training in slow motion. You know where all the legs are. Mm-hmm. And if you don't know where all the legs are, then try to study other people riding their horses at walk and understand the walk is fairly complex. It's a bit like canter. But it always is tends to be the button that we lose once the horse starts to become a little bit confused with what's going on in the world, nearly always the uh, first victim is the walk and the halt and the immobility and hence park as well. So it goes like that. It's really, really easy to see. Horses okay. that um, are really scared don't halt and don't park and they don't walk. They just jog. Yes, yes, yes. You see that on uh, – if, if someone can't get their horse to walk, then, then you wonder about the training, don't you? Well, you do. And, yeah. and just give everybody a tip, those people out there that have um, horses that jog a lot. Then with a the horse that jogs, I just get on the horse and then I say, okay, walk on and, and the horse um, might walk for a while. But then I have a canter and then he can't walk after I've had a canter being way too exciting. <laughs> or I've been out cross country and he can't walk anymore and now he has to jog everywhere and he's going home. Yep. So then when I'm, when I'm getting closer to home, I will start to say, now I want you to jog in self-carriage really slowly. So I'll keep giving the rein. And when I give okay. the rein and he accelerates, I'll apply the rein and say, no, 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 wrong answer. Now that I'll go faster. But just mm-hmm. keep jogging, don't mind, in self-carriage. Okay. And it only takes 30, 40 seconds. And because the rein is now really light and he's not trying accelerating because it wasn't profitable, this is far as I think I prefer to walk. Mm, mm, okay. That's a really good tip and really good training. Yeah. Yep. Okay, okay, and make sense, you know, like like allow the horse to do what you want it to do, make it comfortable when you want it well, to walk. Well, that's right. Yeah, yeah. I can remember years ago that, you know, we'd had horses and they'd say, oh, I really like to have my horse that doesn't jog out on a trail and you 
and we tried turning them left, and we tried walking them backwards and do all those sorts of things. But really, at the end of the day, the reason the horse jogs is because your stop button doesn't work. That's really the essence of the whole thing. The go mm-hmm. button's turned on, you can't turn it off, and, and um, the accelerator's jammed down to the floor. So you've got to take the rock off at some point and put in a good stop button. Yep, yep, yep. If you're an equestrian coach or a horse riding instructor, or even if you aspire to be one, have a look at the free video series for horse riding instructors on the Horse Chats website. Go there now. Have a look. Horsechats.com. That's great. That's great. We've sort of gone through. We've we've gone through the ten tips of proofing the aids, going from the round yard to the open spaces, and again, just in a logical step by step, going back over some very simple principles that are just very consistent all the way through. But, John, I've taken a few points here. I just want to go over them. Let me know if I'm on the right track or if you want to talk about them a bit more. Just this this whole timing of pressure and the release. So the training is happening whenever the release occurs. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We're rewarding every good try by the release of pressure. So if it's a good try and the horse is thinking in the right direction, that's when we release the pressure, scratch the neck, have a rest break, just to reinforce that that's the correct answer, even if it's only a try. That's exactly right. And even even if you release too quickly and then he doesn't end up doing it, the classic one is we're going from trot to walk mm. and you might have um, somebody that holds the rein for too long and, and stifles the, the very first walk step. So you say, oh, release the rein. And then they release the rein too quickly and the horse doesn't walk, he continues to trot. It doesn't matter as long as, you identify the fact that you've actually done the wrong thing. I mean, one or two mistakes is not a problem. Horses are far are very able to withstand those small sorts of errors like we mm-hmm. are, yep, as long yep. as we know that we have made the mistake. Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. Okay, now the next one, the five to seven repetitions. I know you're really big on that. You know, if a horse does five to seven repetitions in a row, that's plenty to end the session on. Exactly, because if you do any more than that, you're probably going to have a bit of brain fatigue here and then he's not able to physically respond to the cue and now you're detraining. Mm-hmm, so that's mm-hmm. the danger. Yep. And all yep. you have to in a row, exactly. Yep, yep. Okay, now I know we've got to think carefully about how our aids are applied, but also to the applying the aids, but we've got to think about the location on the horse's body they affect. You know, the reins affect, is it from the, the, uh, the withers forward, the legs back? Yep. Yep, okay. That's, that's right. The separation of those things is really important, especially if you wish to pursue independent mobility of the shoulders and the hind quarter. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it's in front of the saddle, isn't it? Not in front of the withers. Exactly. Yes, okay. Yep. So, sorry, in front of the So really, when we're using the reins laterally, really, it's really at the junction where the, where the shoulder meets the neck, really, and it's exactly where your hands would need to be anyway. Okay. It's not yep. far from not far from the scratching point anyway, so mm-hmm, it's, a, it's mm-hmm. a readily usable um, site to be used. Yep, yep. All right, now thinking about the aids that we're going to use under saddle, and but even just leading a horse and working with the horse on the ground, we still should use the same aids on the ground that we're going to use under saddle, even if we haven't used under saddle yet. So we're, we're training the saddle aids on the ground first. Exactly. And the thing that I would like to add, and I don't think I've said this before, the moment you catch your horse, you're either training it or wrecking it. Yes, yes. Okay, yep, yep. Yeah, so it's not just lead the horse out and, uh, you know, yeah. it doesn't matter how you lead it out and don't start training it until you've got the saddle on. It's it's training it the whole time, yep. 
That's right. And my, my pet hate, Dennis, is, you know, when I see people leading their horse either in a bridle or in a head collar, mm. and they're at the full length of the lead rope, and the horse is behind them. They, they will be mown down at some point, because mm. if you get into the habit of doing that with um, this horse, yep. and you forget not to do it with the next horse, yep. it could be your demise, you know. Yes, yes, yes. Now, I know that, again, with the logical step-by-step training, we just change one thing at a time. We don't want to change two things because if anything happens, we don't know why it's happened. It's just changing one thing at a time, confirming, making sure we've got that changing context correct before we go on and change another thing. Precisely, especially if you're pursuing some sort of resistance on a button or something like that and you only change one context, you can be fairly sure that you're right. Yep, yep, yep. And stop, turn, reverse, they're all done with the rain signals. Stop, turn, reverse. In the beginning, they're all done with the rain signal. Mm -hmm. Later on, we will add the leg aid for reverse, but you have to be very careful with this um, and you have to be quite skilled at it to do it well, but it becomes a classical cue um, with the leg going backwards behind the girth. But we add that really much later because, of course, anything to do with the leg, with both legs especially, the horse is going to want to go forward. So this is a really complex and dangerous area. So I don't go there until the horse is really well schooled at being able to um, produce a really light signal in reverse um, that is done with equal diagonal pairs and I can do it four to five steps at a time off a light aid, then I'm ready to make it a classical cue with my leg aid, but not until then. While okay. it's heavy in the rain, you'll yep. only meet you'll only meet more disaster. All right. So we're at this stage then, and we'll talk about using the legs a little bit later on. Now, the rein and the leg, we never use them at the same time. We use one before the other, one and then the other, and then the you know, and um, change hmm. between the two. Yep. Yep. And that is probably the biggest hardest pill for most people to swallow because traditionally we're all taught that we use the rein to get the horse's head down because then he's in a frame and he's on the bit. Yes. The horse can be on the bit whether his head is high or low or, you know, it's not relevant to his his posture being on the bit. On the Mm -hmm. bit actually means, if people read the Tom Roberts books, on the, on the bit basically means, or getting a horse to understand the bit and the signals from the bit, is actually all about the signals that you send. It's got nothing to do with the posture. You can have a, a, a stock horse that is beautifully on the bit on a lovely connection because that's where contact comes from, is from being correctly trained to being on the bit. Then if you would like to change his outline, his profile, then we can do other things later, but the two are separated. So that's where we need to make sure that we don't use leg and rein just to mm-hmm. be able to get him to do things because the moment you use rein and you use leg, you're going to shut down the motor. And so the motor, you know, the, all the power comes from behind. We're driving a, they're riding a Volkswagen here. And if you do any rein systems, then you're going to shut down any potential or any certainly any maximum potential of, of, of capability of the horse's motor. So it's a little bit like driving your car with the brake on. Mm, like, there's mm, no point, mm. and it's not ethical anyway. And um, I always find that once the once the horses uh, are being ridden correctly from the back to the front, not from the front to the back, they just adopt their own perfect little natural outline anyway. Yep, yep, yep. Okay. Now, this is something that I think we talked about the first time we had a chat, and I know it's come up a few times since then, is horses commonly use the forward steps to escape but we can't we can't even allow this to go on because 
you know, even just taking that one step, if you allow it to go on, then it's two, then it's three, then every time you apply something they don't like, they run away, and then it ends up being something far more determined. It's exactly right. So I call that leaving the door open. Mm-hmm. So in other words, you might leave the door open to, to maybe um, find out whether the horse is going to escape. So you might give him a very, very lightest of rain pressures or maybe none to dare him to step forward and then correct it. But then if you don't have any rain pressure or you have some and you allow him to take four to five steps in a row or he runs and he's able to put considerable number of paces and distance between the time that he started to the time you corrected it, then that will become an ingrained mechanism for him to be able to escape. And that's exactly part of his hard wiring. Getting back to uh, Tom Roberts, profit, profit me not. Well, I just took 10 steps. That really did profit me. I think I'll do that again. Mm-hmm. And is it bit that if we lose that stop, go, park, does it mean then that the horse just doesn't understand what's been asked of it? It's exactly right. So we tend to find that once you lose that stop button, mm. nearly everything else unravels. Okay. Just about everything else unravels because now the opportunity to completely avoid being dictated by the rider's signals is now really obvious because one button has completely fallen off the wagon. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Now, obedience. How would you define obedience? Obedience is really simple. At the time of the cue, the response occurs, so there's no delay. Okay. Okay. And whatever the level of training that the horse is at, that's the level that you should be giving the cue yep. anyway. Yeah. 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 Yep. Exactly, exactly. People complicate this definition. It doesn't need to be complicated. It's really, really clear. Mm-hmm. At the time of the cue, the response is given. Yep, yep, yep. Okay, so once the obedience is consistent, okay, and the horse is always giving that response, you really want to increase the predictability of your horse reactions to whatever you're training it to. Precisely. Mm. And the, the hardest point in training a young horse to become a more established horse is getting it from a basic level of education through to an obedient level of education. That is the single biggest hurdle on basic training. And I can't tell you how many people have said to me, you know, oh, well, this just goes to prove we should keep, um, we should be um, practicing our basics. And that to me is a really staggering statement because I would never get in an aircraft and, and not let the pilot check that he has everything operational before we fly. Mm-hmm. Why would I do it on a horse? Yep, 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 yep. If you're an equestrian coach or a horse riding instructor, or even if you aspire to be one, have a look at the free video series for horse riding instructors on the Horse Chats website. Go there now. Have a look. Horsechats.com. Okay, so I know that you're really big on this statement and that's a well-trained horse is a safe horse. Yeah. This is probably something that is overlooked by so many people, probably including insurance companies worldwide, is the number of accidents that horses cause is pretty astonishing if anybody wants to have a look at the numbers, whether it be in this country or in another country. It's pretty amazing. From all, all, the, all the domestic animals in the world, our horses the single biggest um, cause. Look, and I think it's exactly the same, is that the most predictable horse is a well-trained horse. Mm-hmm. And that means that our margin of safety is increased. That means there's more things we can do with it. That means that we're more people are able to ride the horse, able to handle the horse. Um, you know, it's just there's no end to the benefits of this. So I'm, I'm not sure why it's not a basic criteria in, 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 in coaching people understanding how to get from a basic level of um, training to an obedient level. This is not a difficult thing to do. Mm, mm, yes, I think it's something that, you know, sometimes 
sometimes it's something that you know, right? So as a horseman, you yeah. know that. But sometimes yeah. science has got to come along and say that, prove it, and just say, right, this is, this is yeah, the best thing to do here. That, that's the one of the other things that I haven't mentioned as well is that out of all the things that I've noticed uh, uh, from all the really good trainers that I've seen, I've seen a lot of good trainers, young trainers, older trainers, really old trainers. The one thing that they all have in common, they have this impeccable um, amount of timing. And mm-hmm. they, yep. they, they probably haven't thought about it, but they are just super good at their timing. And I just think, wow, I hope I'm like that when I'm their age or I wish I was like that when I was as young as that. Mm-hmm. But they are just, I don't know, they just seem to be naturally good at being able to detect the, the instant the horse does the right thing. Yes, know? yes, yes, and very, very subtle. Very subtle. Something that you you miss and all of a sudden they've gone, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. So the, I think the next episode is um, uh, basic dressage training of the young horse. And dressage, I have to be careful. I mean, really, dressage is all about controllability of the horse, and that's where I'll be going for the next one. Okay. So so basic training of the young horse or, yeah. 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 Okay. Now, before that, John, you contact details. Those details, of course, are on horsechats.com. Just search for John or search for McLean or you'll find those details on the bottom of each page. But for people to contact you direct now, what's the best way? Look, my email is always the, is the best way. It's mm-hmm. probably it's something that I can get everywhere I go pretty much. And it's um, uh, johnmclean at gmail.com. It's all lowercase and it's spelled J-O-N-N-A-M-C-L-E-A-N at gmail.com. Okay. And okay. people just throw me a line and um, I'm always checking my email, so it's easy. Good, good. Because I know you've you've just been in New Zealand. You're about to go to Western Australia. You're um yeah. You're sort of certainly moving around a lot. So you check your Gmail. It's pretty easy in most countries, most places. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. All right, Jonna. Lovely to talk to you again, and looking forward to talking about the basic training of a young horse next time. I look forward to it too, Burns. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye bye. If you've enjoyed this chat, then please comment, rate, and subscribe. If you'd like any changes or recommendations for guests, then please contact us through horsechats.com. And while you're online, have a look at the government-accredited courses at internationalhorsecollege.com. Registered Training Organisation 31352. Remember that our comments and instructions are general in nature and do not take into consideration your individual horses or your individual ability and circumstances. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please leave your comment below.